Well, good morning. It's a pleasure to be with you today. If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of John. If you're a guest with us, we're in a series of sermons studying the Gospel of John. If you came without a Bible today, we have one provided underneath the seat in front of you. You should be able to just look underneath that seat, grab one of those Bibles, turn to somewhere around page 886, and find the Gospel of John. And if you do not have a copy of God's Word that you can call your own, we would love for you to take one of those home with you today. Just feel free to return to there, use that Bible, and then leave with it. Consider that a gift from us to you today. I'm going to begin reading in John chapter 2, verse 1, in just a few moments, even though we're going to focus our attention on verses 12 through 22. John writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he speaks to us with the same authority as of Jesus Christ himself, we're here speaking to us today. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it had come from, though the disciples and the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to them, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and all his disciples. And they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem in the temple. He found those who were there selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house consumes me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us now as we turn our attention to your word. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see the beauty of the gospel as it has been decisively revealed in your scripture. Father, I pray that you would help me, that you would, in this time, help me now to be able to bring the word to bear on the lives of those who are here. Father, I pray that it would be applicable for all of us, that we might grow in righteousness, that we might see clearly what John is presenting to us, 
that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing we may have life in his name. Father, we pray for those who are here who are not yet Christians. We ask, God, that you would do the good work of redeeming grace in this time, that you would use your word to soften their hearts, that you would cause them to be born again. And, Father, we pray for those who are Christians, that they would be encouraged and built up in a holy faith. And we ask all of this in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. Hardly the limp-wristed, weak, effeminate Jesus of the storybooks and murals, the Jesus of John 2, 12 through 22, comes into the temple, sweat on his brow, holiness in his mouth, and a toughness emanating from him. The scene is actually one that is so compelling and disturbing in the gospel narratives that we often balk at it. After all, we come and we find Jesus here, one man among many thousands, disrupting the whole of Passover with zeal. As tables are flipped over, money is spilled out onto the floor, people are chased out, and toes are stepped on. It's actually almost too much for many of us as we read through John's Gospel. So much so that many people don't like it. And as readers, we naturally try to find ways to accommodate it and to domesticate it by focusing on historical details instead of Jesus' actions. It couldn't really have been a whip that would have hurt people. It had to have been rushes. Jesus would never hurt anybody. That's what was going on here. Because it seems to present Jesus in a way that's unusual for us. More like a religious fanatic in the midst of an angry outburst. We prefer our Jesus to be more measured. Predictable. So that all that Jesus says, and all that Jesus does, and all that Jesus expects us to do, makes sense to us. But that isn't the Jesus that John presents to us at the beginning of his gospel narrative. In John's gospel, Jesus' own faith and that which he calls people to involves a burning passion for what is right and true and honors God. And until we see that in John's narrative, we'll miss everything that Jesus is doing as he encounters Jewish tradition after Jewish tradition and transforms their meaning, displaying that he is the reality to which all of these things are pointing to. From wine to whips, Jesus is displaying that his presence not only affects religious rituals, but actually changes hearts. As he transitions in John's gospel from the greatest party maker the world has ever known to the biggest party pooper the world has ever known. From being invited to the wedding to inserting himself in the temple. From acting quietly behind the scenes to now dramatically in public. From giving in abundance so that everyone is happy and satisfied to driving everybody away. From bringing joy at a wedding so that people are happy and overwhelmed to inciting fear, causing confusion for us as readers. From comforting other people to disturbing the crowds who are supposed to be there celebrating Passover. For John, though the wedding and the temple are so utterly different, and they are utterly different in the way that he displays them, they're actually teaching us one thing. That we can give thanks that Jesus' zeal brings life to the world. And that helps us understand Jesus' action 
in verses 12 through 17, and the Jewish reaction in verses 18 through 22 in our time together this morning. Notice first Jesus' action. Look with me again in verses 13 through 17. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The first of three Passovers that John mentions in his gospel now sets the stage for the symbolism of Jesus' actions at the annual pilgrim festival that commemorated the deliverance of all of the Jewish people and their slavery from Egypt. As they remembered on these days the angel of death passing over their children and God dramatically parting the Red Sea so that they could pass through on dry ground, the city would have been all commotion with excitement with travelers from all over the world on their way to the temple. The very place that Jesus aimed to be when he went into the city. Originally built by Solomon in 949 B.C. and rebuilt in 515 B.C. after the Babylonians destroyed it, the importance of the temple to Judaism cannot be overstated. And John knows that. So he presents us with this dramatic scene at the very beginning of his gospel. Not only is the temple the central shrine where atonement for sin is made, but it's also considered to be God's dwelling place which actually helps us understand why Jesus was so repulsed by what he saw. Why Jesus is so outraged when he enters into the temple. That God's temple, God's presence, had merely become a farmer's market. Verse 14. In the temple, Jesus found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. Like so many people in the 21st century... People in the first century learned how to profit off of religion. These merchants were providing sacrificial animals and temple currency, both important resources for those who wanted to draw near to God as they entered into the city. And with so many people traveling from all over the world to worship at the temple in Jerusalem, the selling of animals would have been, as one commentator noted, a useful and even necessary function, even as they profited, since so many people were traveling from long distances. You can't really go from somewhere in Europe over to Jerusalem bringing your cattle with you. And as they're traveling, they would buy these sacrificial animals because it wasn't feasible for them to carry them on the way, requiring them to buy the animals on arrival and change all of their currency so that they could pay all of the temple taxes so that they could be good Jewish people. There was nothing wrong with the commodities per se. Or even with the buying and selling. In fact, without the traders, the pilgrims who would have come to worship God would not have been able to draw near to God. But in all of the hustle and bustle of the business of religion, and all of the buying and the selling, there would have been impossible for people to worship God or approach Him in prayer. So verse 15, making a whip of cords, Jesus drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Jesus' complaint is not simply that these merchants are guilty of being swindlers because they're profiting off of religion. 
His complaint is that they shouldn't be in the temple at all. Instead of reverence and prayer, there's bellowing and bleeding. Instead of contrition and petition, there's noise and commerce. Instead of brokenness and praise, there's haggling and bargaining. Jesus' action is a prophetic invitation to worship God from the heart, without the clamor of distraction. Fellow Christian here today, before we continue, I just wonder, does that describe your worship of God? Undistracted. Your private devotions, uninterrupted. Or do they look a lot like this? Blocking God out from actually focusing on you, from focusing on Him. Is the noise of life in the background drowning out the noise of the gospel? And yet, though completely understandable from Jesus' perspective, we have to wonder why He acted as He did on this particular occasion, since He would have seen similar things on previous visits. Like any good Jew, John helps us see that Jesus was always going in and out of Jerusalem, going up to Jerusalem and down back into Galilee. Why was this one so different? The driving out of the animals, and the scattering of the coins on the floor, and the overturning of the tables fulfills Mark's gospel teaches us, Jeremiah 7.11. Has this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your eyes? And that calls all of the people of his day to stop making his father's house a place of business and trade and commerce, a marketplace rather than a house of worship. But John doesn't point us to Jeremiah. He actually directs our attention elsewhere. As he tells us, Jesus' disciples later came to understand this event as the fulfillment of Psalm 69 in verse 17. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. Now there's too much of the psalm to read right now, but let me draw our attention to two sections of it. So if you have your Bible, I want you to flip over to Psalm 69. And as you're turning to Psalm 69, let me just encourage you as a Bible reader... When you see that there's a direct quotation of Scripture, to always be asking yourself, why is this particular passage of Scripture quoted when it is quoted in the New Testament? Asking yourself, how does this particular passage of Scripture support or advance what the biblical author is teaching us as he is teaching us in this writing? And as you do, remember that for the biblical authors... To quote any portion of any text was to allude to the entirety of the text because they didn't have the chapter and verse divisions that you and I now have. So for John to remind us of Psalm 69, 9, would have been John alluding to all of Psalm 69, drawing to our attention everything that is taking place in Psalm 69. A Davidic psalm, if you just look at the superscript at the beginning of the psalm, it tells us. A Davidic psalm that's about a righteous sufferer. A Davidic psalm about a righteous sufferer who says, verse 7, if you're looking at the psalm now, For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me. And the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept, I was humbled in my I humbled my soul with fasting. It became my reproach. Now verse 30. When I made sackcloth with my clothing, I became a byword to them. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. 
This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hoofs. When the humble see it, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. John doesn't tell us whether the disciples remembered this Old Testament text then and there or only after the resurrection. John just tells us here in verse 17 that they remembered the psalmist David crying out to God because of the opposition he endured from his enemies. Opposition that he endured from his enemies by not being committed to right worship in the temple. So he says, the psalmist, zeal for your house has consumed me. And now John, like so many other New Testament writers, detects in the experience of David a prophetic paradigm that anticipates what must take place in David's greater son, Jesus. Jesus' actions in the temple testify to his concern for pure worship. They testify to his concern for a right relationship with God. At the very place designated to serve as the very focal point of all of our relationship between God and what it means for us to worship him. That concern consumed Jesus and ultimately it consumed him to death. Jesus was so concerned and so zealous to secure pure worship, a right relationship for God, that God's pe- for God's people, that he offered himself up as the ultimate sacrifice, the last and final and climactic sacrifice as a substitute for sinners. Like a lamb that is being led to the slaughter, he willingly bore all of the sins of God's people before God and was consumed to death so that they might worship God rightly and be in right relation to God. If you're here and you're a Christian, that is the basic message of Christianity. One that we hear week in and week out. One that we never weary of preaching to you even as believers so that you might remember and continue to worship God for all that he has done for us in Christ. Jesus was so concerned for securing your pure devotion to God that he was consumed to the point of death. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, that's a message that you're going to hear week after week from this pulpit. Jesus Christ loved sinners so much that he came into the world to be consumed so that they might have everlasting life and know that it was because of his zeal that they can have eternal life. It's a teaching that we invite you to believe in by repenting of your sins, turning away from them, by placing your faith in Jesus Christ as a substitute for sinners, asking God to help you trust in him completely and everything that he did for sinners, trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. And friend, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you can be forgiven of your sins. You can be forgiven of your sins by trusting in this Christ. And if you're here and you're a Christian, you are to give thanks. Give thanks that Jesus' zeal brings life to the world. It has brought life to you. That life was brought to you so that you can offer pure worship to God today and be in right relation to God. Jesus' actions, because of his concern, attract opposition. They did in the first century, they do in the 21st century. So the psalmist indicates that the psalmist's zeal caused him problems with his enemies. God's people, no less, for Jesus. And John tells us that the one greater than David experienced the very same thing as his forefather David. Jesus' zeal judges. It cleanses the establishment that was central in the old era, but that which is patently failing to achieve the purpose for which it existed. The action in and of itself of Jesus coming into the temple showed that Jesus was the expected one. Though his arrival proved uncomfortable, 
It was challenging. It was uncomfortable when it was challenging then. And friends, it's uncomfortable and challenging now. To invite Jesus into your life is uncomfortable and challenging. Jesus doesn't give them an explanation before he acts. He just comes in and he acts and they have to deal with it. And friends, in the life of a believer, so often that is true in your life as well. Jesus does not always give you an explanation. He just requires you to receive it. To receive it and to trust it. And to give thanks that his zeal brings you life. Jesus' action. Notice second, Jewish reaction. Look with me again in verse 18. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. The religious leaders understand that Jesus' actions is a prophetic act. So they react by demanding that he perform a sign to demonstrate his authority. Verse 18. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? As Jewish authorities entrusted with facilitating temple worship, they had every right to question the credentials of someone who would take such bold actions in God's temple. In the midst of the temple complex, as all of these worshipers had gathered. But their questioning reveals no self-examination, no reflection. They're not wondering if Jesus did the right thing or a good thing. They're simply wanting to know precedent and authority. And Jesus will have none of it, verse 19. So he answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Now careful readers notice the irony of what Jesus says. Jesus does not say, I will destroy the temple... But destroy this temple, and then he says, he will raise it up. Jesus' response to their reaction is ultimately fulfilled when the Jews themselves, at the end of John's gospel, bring about the very sign that they wanted when they have him crucified, though they fail to recognize it when it happens because they fail to grasp that he is speaking about himself and not the literal temple. Verse 20. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? They're naturally incredulous, like anybody else would be, after taking 46 years to put this building together. How could it be rebuilt in three days? But irony abounds as John gives us an explanation and clears away all misunderstanding for us. Verse 21. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. What Jesus was really referring to in verse 19 was his own body, a body that would be destroyed by them and raised in power by him, a body in which they would see that he is who he has professed to be, the word made flesh. The body of Jesus, as one commentator notes, uniquely manifests the Father. And becomes the focal point of the manifestation of God to all mankind. The living abode of God on earth. The fulfillment of everything that the temple meant to point to. The very center of all true worship over and against all of the other holy sites. And in this temple, the body of Jesus, the ultimate sacrifice would take place. 
the death of Jesus himself as a substitute for sinners. And then within three days of that death, within three days of his burial, the true temple, Jesus himself, would rise from the dead. Which is why, verse 22, John tells us, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. John supplies a commentary for us to clarify the meaning for his readers. He does that by linking the two sections. Just look up at verse 12 for me. For many years, reading this passage, I'd always read 2, 1 through 11, and 2, 13 through 22, and I never really knew what to do with verse 12 until studying this passage this week. After this, linking the two sections... He went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. John doesn't transition hard away from the scene, but brings the two scenes together to clarify meaning for us. After doing what he did at the wedding, now he gives us another interpretation, a different side of the same coin, so that we might see that Jesus is coming on the scene, transforming institutions that point to God, and he is saying, they point to me. The wedding at Cana points to me. I'm bringing about a new age. The temple and all of your worship there, it points to me. I am the true temple, the one that you are to worship. This points to all of the abundance that I will bring. And this points to the type of worship that I deserve. And you're doing it wrong. And it's not until after the resurrection that his disciples remember all of these words and they believe the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken, which is actually the very purpose of John from the very end of his letter. He tells us that this is what he's trying to do. Flip to the end of John's gospel, chapter 20. As we're reading John's gospel, we are teaching ourselves to remind ourselves of verses 30 and 31 of chapter 20. And we see at the beginning of his gospel all of these references that are pointing us to people believing in Jesus. The very thing that John says is the express purpose of all of his writing. Chapter 20, verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The appropriate response to this seemingly horrible incident in Jesus' life and ministry is belief. Not to domesticate it and explain it away as if Jesus is also allowed to have a bad day like anybody else, but to realize that what Jesus is doing here is calling people to believe rightly. And it confronts us with the question, will you believe? Will you believe in this Christ who comes in and overturns everything about your expectation of what it means to worship God? Will you follow this Jesus all the way to the cross whose zeal for God's house consumed him to the point of death when he invites you to do the same? Will you trust in this Christ Even when it costs you everything, will you believe in this Jesus and follow him to the end? Believer, that's no less true for you today than it was on the first day of your conversion. 
Will you believe in this Christ? Not a domesticated Jesus that make, you're able to make sense of so that you can live the way that you want to live, but a Jesus that turns everything over in your life and transforms everything in radical and dramatic ways, calling you to do maybe what you don't want to do. And friends, if Jesus cannot call you to do what you do not want to do, either he's not God or he's not your God. And non-Christian here today, will you follow this Jesus? This Jesus, who John tells us, is fulfilling everything that we have longed for. Everything that these weddings point to, point to him. All of this temple worship points to him. You can follow him today. You can believe. You can trust in this Christ. He is the fulfillment of scripture. Notice the disciples' response in verse 22. His disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. They believed his teaching and his scripture. Many of you here, if you're not a Christian, want to believe in Jesus. You want a Jesus who will forgive you of your sins, but you don't want to believe the scriptures of Jesus that call you to live a different way. You want a Jesus who will make sure that you go to heaven, but you don't want a Jesus that commands holiness in your life. You want a Jesus that makes sure that you get to enjoy eternity forever, but you don't want a Jesus that tells you that you can't get drunk. You want a Jesus that assures you of eternal life, you don't want a Jesus that tells you that you cannot live immorally with somebody else. You want a Jesus that promises you comfort and that will comfort you on the other side of all of your suffering, but you don't want a Jesus that requires that you give sacrificially of what has been entrusted to you and that you be a member of his church and serve his people. The disciples began to see that it wasn't just following Jesus. It was also believing the scriptures that testified to Jesus. Scriptures like Jeremiah 7 and scriptures like Psalm 69 and scriptures like 2 Samuel 7. And scriptures like all of the Old Testament. Scriptures that expect of God's people righteousness and purity, holiness and patience, forgiveness and generosity. Scriptures that expect that God's people would live differently in God's world because they have realized that all of the religious rituals fall short unless we see what they point to. Jesus comes in and he doesn't give an explanation first. He just acts. And then he later tells people. It's not until the other side of the resurrection, though, that the disciples understand. They needed the resurrection, the ultimate sign in John's gospel, to be able to rightly interpret these acts. Friend, if you're here and you don't trust in Jesus, you're never really going to be able to make sense of John 2 until you repent of your sins and place your faith in Jesus. John tells us that we can't make sense of Jesus consuming death if we don't believe in his resurrection. We can't make sense of Jesus' resurrection if we don't trust in his consuming death. And the apostle tells us that it is his death and his resurrection that were for us and for our justification that we might be declared righteous before God. The timing of Jesus' action in John's gospel, the timing of the Jews' reaction in John's gospel, enhances the irony of everything in John chapter 2, verses 12 through 22, because it's the time of Passover. When all of the people in Jerusalem would have been gathering at the temple, and that all of the Jews there would have been recalling God's judgment on God's enemies. And what do they find? Jesus says, you all are my enemies if you do not believe in me. That it's not some other people that are my enemies. 
is people who are worshiping me wrongly and do not realize that I am the one to which all of these festivals point to. Far from judging his enemies, Jesus comes in John 2 to bring judgment to the very people who think that they're worshiping him rightly. Friend, I wonder if that describes you today. You think that you worship God rightly because you're here regularly. You're here week after week. You do a lot of religious things, but you don't see what the religious things point to. Jesus tells us here in this text that we are a people who are at odds with him if we don't realize that. But believer, if you're here and you're trusting in Christ, you can give thanks that Jesus brings life to the world through his zeal. He cleanses the temple. He rises from the dead. I wonder if you've ever stopped to wonder why Jesus was so angry. I think Jesus raged at them for at least two reasons as we try to apply the text to our lives today. First, I think that there's a compromised witness here for the people. The merchants and the money changers are setting up this shop inside the temple precinct. And the very people that they're preventing from seeing the glory of God are the very people that they're supposed to be a light to, the nations. Friends, I wonder, members of this church in particular, I wonder if sometimes the way that we live and the way that we worship are preventing the very people that we long to evangelize with the gospel from seeing the beauty of the gospel. Are our lives loud shouts of religious activity but hollow demonstrations of worship? And is our witness compromised to the people around us? Jesus raged because his house was no longer a house for the nations, but just religious activity. May it never be so among us that we would just be people of religious activity. God's plan has always been to draw all the nations to worship him. Nations that can't hear the beauty of the gospel when they see lives that are actually full of religious activity but not love for God. Second, a hollow worship. The cleansing of the temple is an indictment not only on religious activity and fruitless ritual, but it's an indictment on all of the transactional ways that we live. We do for God so that we might receive from him. The story of Jesus cleansing the temple is a warning for us. Have the mercenary ways of the Pharisees crept into our own lives, into our own hearts, into our own church? And what is the appropriate response to both of these? Belief. Will you believe? You can believe today. Is our church, your social media, your life, our life together, crowding out the voice of the gospel so that our neighbors can't see and hear the beauty of the gospel? Have we sought platform and prestige and profit above the glory of God? Friends, everybody in here must answer these questions individually. And we, as a church, must answer these questions together. This story of Jesus disturbs us. But it's in every one of the Gospels. And without it, our picture and portrait of Jesus is incomplete. Without the story of Jesus walking into the temple and throwing out furniture and wielding a whip and driving out false worshipers and overturning money tables and merchants, we would not be able to give thanks to God that Jesus' zeal brings eternal life. And it does. To you this day, will you believe? Let's pray.